everybody. Welcome back to the Good Theology Podcast. Jake here with our my co-host, David Campbell. So pleased to have you joining us for another episode. And today we're going to discuss uh, the nation of Israel uh, and a theology of uh, Israel, uh, which I think will be really good. David has a lot of knowledge in this area, uh, and I've certainly learned a lot from him in regards to how to view the church and uh, the nation of Israel um, in light of the new covenant. So David, it's good to be back with you. And uh, how are you doing today? Yeah, we're doing well. And for devoted viewers of the podcast may notice that my books are back in place um, after we moved house. And uh, one of my younger friends came and fixed these bookcases to the wall. They look so great. Not all up, but some of them are up. About have you uh, have you actually like cracked any of those books open and read them, or are they just there for display? <laughs> well, no. You know, with, with, that's cheeky. But with commentaries, you don't generally read them. You consult them right. in time to time. They're, they're there to refer to. Yeah. What, what's do, your favorite? I admit that some have some dust on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, do you use like online resources now? Like I use no. all of my commentaries are in Logos. No, you're, you're all paper. Yeah. 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 Well, I've made the investment in them. I'm not going to drop thousands of dollars on Logos just for on digital versions. Yeah. I don't have. <laughs> uh, and I guess at this point, I mean, now that you, you know, everything, you know, if you need to write a sermon on, on the go, you don't even need a commentary. You are the commentary. Well, now that would be arrogant to say that I actually <laughs> would use them and do use them. Yeah. What's your favorite, do you have a favorite commentary series, David? Um, I like the, uh, if you have some Greek, the New International Greek New Testament is a great, great series. Um, the New International, the old New International, that's, they've been around for years. Some of them mm -hmm. have been updated. Um, commentary on the Old New Testament are generally a really quite good series on the English text. Baker Exegetical on the English text, good series. The Pillar Commentaries are a good series. All those are good. Uh, they're, uh, you know, uh, they're not brief. Mm -hmm. They're they're the kind that are meaty. Um, but the Baker Exegetical and the Pillar and the New International uh, commentary on the Old and New Testament, um, you don't have to have biblical languages. They're understandable. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's various types of simple, like the Tyndale commentaries, for instance, or paperbacks. They're much briefer. Um, but I'm not sure how much you would get out of them if you were trying to prepare mm -hmm. a, an exegetical uh, you know, sermon that had some meaty teaching in it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Cool. Thanks for those recommendations. Okay. So let's jump into this conversation. Um, I'm going to let you kick things off because you'll do a much better job. Uh, but let's talk about this. We've been kind of, we haven't necessarily talked about it, but I kind of have sensed that you and I have been hesitant to do an episode um, on Israel. Just, you know, I guess we're, we don't strive to be reactionary but there is obviously uh, you know an increased awareness in the body of Christ right now due to what's going on between uh Israel and and Hamas 
um, and the conflict and, and war there. Um, and so it brings up theological conversations for people that are particularly eschatological in nature. So I want to go there a bit. Um, but I want to focus the conversation specifically around what what our view of national Israel should be, and, and what does the New Testament teach us in that regard? Um, and so, is that kind of enough context for you to, for yeah. you to jump off um, with? Yeah, and, and I think that uh, where we go wrong, as always, in my opinion, is when we mix politics in with theology. And it gets toxic pretty quickly or goes off the rails one way or another. And I think we have to draw a really, really careful line. Um, if, for instance, we want to support Israel, and I've always said this, I'm not just making this up because of this latest situation. I've said this for years and years and years. We we would support Israel, um, you know, perhaps similar to way we would support Ukraine. Um, but Israel has, uh, you know, some democratic human rights values. I know it's not perfect, but it's better than the alternatives in, in most parts of the Middle East, which are uh, dictatorships and often very corrupt and so on. Uh, there, there isn't really any uh, great... Um, well, anyway, I'll just leave it at that. Mm -hmm. So you can support Israel on those grounds. Um, but of course, when you're, when you're making a political call, then you have to acknowledge the nuances of the situation. Right. That, uh, you know, one side is not 100% in the right. Mm -hmm. And you get into that whole debate, which we don't really want to get into. Right. And this is not a political show. And, it is not a political yeah. show. And I spend so much time imploring pastors to keep politics out of the pulpit. Um, so I'm not going to do it myself. But uh, when it comes to the nation of Israel, the problem is rooted in dispensational theology, what we call dispensational theology, which regular viewers of our podcast are probably just about fed up hearing us talk about it all the time, <laughs> or me anyway, talking about it. Um, but it's a system of uh, theological interpretation that was invented in, and I say invented, in the 1800s, didn't exist before. Uh, and uh, basically, on the proposition that God has two covenants, one through with the Gentiles through the cross of Christ, and other the other covenant being with Israel, and that, that God sent Jesus to to actually um, establish an earthly kingdom, uh, and Jesus failed in his mission and got crucified, and so God, uh, you know, um, that that that's God's plan A is is to establish an earthly kingdom for the Jewish people, and uh, so God has to take a break on that project after the cross, and He brings in Plan B, which was never His original intention which is the church, and we live in the church age or dispensation. And so uh, the inventor of the system, a man called John Nelson Darby, um, 
he, and I'm sorry for this slight digression that's necessary to explain the rest of it. Um, Darby uh, cooked up this system uh, partly because he was very passionate about the restoration of Israel as a nation. This is back in the 1820s, you know. Mm -hmm. He felt very strongly that Israel would be restored as a nation. And uh, uh, he allowed that to become the kind of center point of his entire interpretation of the Bible. Did he cite um, what his so, reasons were for that? Like, did he did, sorry? did he try to ground that that passion in scripture somehow? Well, he tried to refashion scripture around his thesis, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the problem that he had was that his his idea was that there are two entirely separate covenants, which is not what we believe. We believe there's one covenant of grace that all people mm -hmm. are saved through, but Darby thought there was two. One with the Jews through the law, one with Christ, uh, one for the Gentiles through uh, grace and the cross. And so we're now in the church age, and God was uh, not able to fulfill his original plan, but he still intends to. So Darby faced a really serious problem, which was God can't deal in two covenants at the same time on the basis of Darby's own theology. So Somehow the covenant with the Gentiles has to be brought to an end so that God can get back to the covenant with the Jews. And Darby, this was the point in which the whole system uh, got stuck until a young woman in a kind of off-base charismatic group in proto-charismatic, charismatic, for there was charismatic group in Scotland, this young lady had a um, vision. And in the vision, was interpreted to mean that there was a secret return of Christ. No one had ever, ever proposed that before in all of church history. And it didn't come out of biblical interpretation. It came out of a weird prayer meeting where this girl had a vision. But Darby knew of this, this group, and he connected the dots, and he, t he seized a hold of this idea of a a secret return of Christ, not the visible return of Christ that everyone had always believed in, but a second secret return of Christ. And all of a sudden, this became the answer to his problem. Because if there was a secret return of Christ, then Darby connected that with removing the Gentiles, because that solved his problem of getting rid of the Gentiles so that God could get back to his covenant with the Jews. And that's what we call the rapture. Mm -hmm. And the whole left behind theology and all is associated with, along with about a million failed predictions of the return of Christ. And every the focus of God's purpose is that is the state of Israel, not the Church of Jesus Christ. It's, right. it's not. It's it's really it's false teaching. Um, even though many sincere Christians who hold that view in other areas of their doctrine are quite orthodox, but in this area, they aren't. So Darby cooked up this system where Jesus returns, the temple is rebuilt, the law is reestablished, Jesus established an earthly kingdom, which is what God intended him to do in the first place, which of course, it was incorrect. That was what the Jewish rabbis thought was going to happen. But Jesus said, no, the kingdom is within you. So, um, so as a consequence... We're left with an identification of the state of Israel with the divine purposes of Almighty God. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you can't touch Israel. 
And what gets lost in the process is the distinction the Bible makes between the state of Israel and the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And so in Romans chapters 9 to 11, Paul gives us a theology for the revival and restoration of the Jewish people uh, in the last days before the return of Christ. Mm-hmm. But it's the Jewish people. It's not the state of Israel. The state of Israel didn't exist in Paul's day. He wouldn't have known how to, you know. It, the, and that revival of, isn't a political revival. It's not it is, a reestablishment of their nation. Of it's people to Christ. To Christ, right? By it, it, the it's cross. the same way. They're saved the same way as we are. The same way as anybody else is saved. Christ and has then, appeared once for all, as Hebrews. Nine right. says once for all at the culmination of the ages, and and um, he do, Hebrew says he does away with the first to establish the second. The law, mm-hmm. the, the old sacrificial system is done away with, and so you know to to suggest that that's all going to be reinstituted and somehow Jews can come through this sacrificial system. And Which is the claim, priesthood. just for our listeners, that, that the claim is that there will be a rebuilding of a temple. A reinstitution of all the sacrificial system, uh, and and Christ is going to reign in that context, right? Yes, and so it's ludicrous that Christ, whose cross did away with the sacrificial system, is now sitting in an earthly Jerusalem uh, for a thousand years, presiding over a sacrificial system that he did away with. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one of a number of biblical monstrosities that are the underpinning of dispensationalism. Um, so, uh, but that's the problem that we're left with. And um, so... Uh, so just to recapitulate that really simply, you're saying that we can have perhaps political reasons for favoring Israel in a conflict in the Middle East, um, but that needs to be nuanced. Because as you said, um, that they're not going to be perfect. Uh, but we we don't have any theological reasons for being pro-Israel. Is that right? Well, no, there, there's no there's no direct endorsement by God of the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could, um, and and Paul is so clear in Galatians. He says he talks about the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the church, versus the earthly Jerusalem, which is in slavery. And then he says, we are the Israel of God. That's the church is the Israel of God. And dispensationalists go into a, a, a state over this and say, oh, that's replacement theology. Well, nobody really understands what they're talking about. Right. As if it's something wrong. And But it isn't even, that isn't even what the Bible teaches. The Bible never teaches replacement. It teaches fulfillment. It right. teaches that. The Gentiles have been taken up into the covenant people that God established in Abraham. So we're all Messianic Jews in that sense. So mm-hmm. nobody believes in replacement theology. Nobody's ever suggested that. Uh, it's as ridiculous yeah. an argument as, you know, when the John MacArthur type people say that charismatics don't believe in the Bible anymore because they mm-hmm. have prophecy. That's mm-hmm. It's what's called a straw man. It's setting up a false argument and, and right. then, you know, and. I mean, replacement theology, no, we don't believe that the church has replaced Israel. We, pl- we believe that the church is the spiritual Israel. It's the fulfillment. And Paul is so right. clear in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He and at the, foundation of that, at the foundation of that is the belief that Jesus is the true Israel. 
Jesus, he, he is, is the, the Israelite. Israel. He is the faithful Israelite. He is. Yeah. And if you read John's gospel, Jesus is pictured there as the fulfillment of uh -huh. all the Jewish feasts, the Sabbath and the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, all the Jewish feasts are fulfilled in Christ such that we have no need. They're superfluous. For Christians to be going back and celebrating Passover or some other feast is ridiculous. It's almost like saying, well, what does the work of Christ mean? Mm -hmm. You know, because Christ is the fulfillment of those things and, uh, and of every biblical prophecy. Mm -hmm. So that's how we have to come to this whole issue. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, then it becomes, when, when you look at what's happening in the news, and I've always said this in, when I teach in Revelation, Revelation has 404 verses and it has over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. That means you you cannot understand the book of Revelation except by reading it through those 500 plus allusions mm -hmm. that are in those 400 verses. And so you understand Revelation through the Old Testament. That's what that's what explains all the symbolism in Revelation. You can you can trace all every one of those, you know, 500 references back, it explains something in the book of Revelation, makes it understandable. If you try, if you ignore the 500 plus allusions to the Old Testament and pretend that they don't exist, you'll never understand Revelation correct. And what dispensationalism does, it says, forget about the Old Testament, because for them, the Old Testament isn't even valid for the Christian. As a matter of fact, dispensationalism, which is rapture teaching, it teaches that the Gospels are not relevant for the Church of Jesus Christ. If you believe right. in the rapture— When you say the Gospels, you, this, you mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, mm -hmm. and John are not relevant. They are—that's teaching that Jesus brought to the, to the Jews, Jews only. In which the they rejected the and crucified him. Kingdom. Mm -hmm. So if you believe in the rapture, it's the tip of an iceberg, which is catastrophically heretical. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I hate to be— you know, to throw such, but I mean, uh, what, what did dispensationalists do with Pentecost? What, what, what's their view of Christians being filled with the spirit then? Well, that they would, they would see, it's hard to say, I, you know, they, because some dispensationalists would, would say that the church really doesn't begin until, um, Cornelius and the Gentiles and Antioch. So even right. Pentecost wouldn't be relevant, but they certainly would say that partway through the book of Acts, when the, the gospel comes to the Gentiles, that's the part that's relevant, and everything mm -hmm. beyond that, and the epistles and so on, are relevant to to the church. So you know they would teach out of the gospels, but but theoretically, um, the gospels would only be advisory for the Christian. They they wouldn't be directly applicable because they weren't intended for Christians. And so this is this is the problem of dispensationalism. So, you know, when, when we, but, but the, and, and the consequence of all this, as I was saying a minute ago, is that when we read the book of Revelation, if you're a dispensationalist, you, you ignore the Old Testament because it's got nothing to do with Revelation or the, the, the uh, church today or anything like that. You, in, instead, you interpret the book of Revelation by whatever you're watching on Fox News or, you know, um, if you're a little more left wing, you might be um, CNN 
or whatever, but you're you're getting the interpretation of revelation out of whatever's happening in the Middle East because everything's to do with Israel. And of course, the problem is that you know, just say over the course of my lifetime as a Christian, that there's frequent crises around Israel. Every time there's a crisis, um, this is the return of the Lord. This is the rapture's coming. The Antichrist is around every corner, and people get themselves in a lather. And one man, you know, wrote a book that the world was going to end. Christ was going to the rapture was going to take place in 1988. I've heard people say the rapture should have taken place last year. And, uh, you know, none of these predictions ever come true. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and, and some of them make us a laughing stock in the eyes of the world. Like that guy who said the rapture is coming in 1988. As far as I remember, he was uh, lived in Los Angeles, actually, and mm-hmm. was putting up Sounds billboards right. and spent a, spent a fortune. People were selling their houses and giving him all their money mm-hmm. to put up billboards warning that Jesus was returning. And then, of course, that never happened. And did he publish an apology? No. He published another book saying he got it off by you, <laughs> tried to make some more money, and then he disappeared. See, so this is the strong temptation. As soon as these things come up in the news, it's, it, it's to go all back to that kind of thing. And then Christians look really, first of all, they look really stupid. Um, because the rapture doesn't happen, and it won't happen uh, at, at, as a result of the current stuff that's going on, and also it 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 gets our it it ruins our ability to come to any sane assessment from a political or a justice, let's say, point of view. Right. Um, we have no choice but to be biased. You you have to support Israel in an unqualified manner. Right. Because otherwise you're supporting the the Antichrist, right. and then of course we forget. I said the pastor, the whose church I was in yesterday, was so wise when he prayed from the pulpit. First of all, for the saints, for the Christians mm-hmm. exactly. in in both Gaza and Israel, they're mm-hmm. Palestinian Christians mm-hmm. and they're Israeli Christians. Mm-hmm. First of all, we pray for the who, Christians who there. form one body together, which is the true yeah. Israel. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And because uh, uh, Christ and then, brings and down the dividing wall of hostility for you know everybody involved, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, of course the uh, which is that what that's Galatians six right let as let us do good to everybody as you have opportunity, uh, especially the household of God and the household of God is comprised of Jew and Gentile it's called the church and so they mm-hmm. the, the the church is our in that example, our, our priority in prayer, that's where we go first. And then we do good to everybody. We pray for everybody affected by the situation, um, uh, innocent p- people. Um, and we can pray that God would bring an end to the evil, you know? And so I think what you're saying is, is pretty loud and clear, and it makes complete biblical sense. Let me ask a few questions because there's a number of things to clarify um, and explore further. But let me start with this. Can we just briefly? Uh, walk people through the rapture and why that is not a biblical doctrine, because that's one of those things that so many people have grown up with. Um, and I can imagine at this moment, if people have not heard us talk about this before, that's kind of like, oh, whoa, a bit un- unsettling or a bit jarring. So let's just talk through that uh, in a brief way. Um, yeah, well, and, 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 and just, let me, just let me add in again. Mm-hmm. 
to people that are listening to this that I am not anti-Israel. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, what happened was absolutely horrific mm-hmm. in those attacks that were made. And uh, the, it is absolutely a manifestation of evil. No question mm-hmm. about that. Uh, but in the wider context, obviously, of the history of the Middle East, um, you know, the, the Arabs have got a, a, a poor deal as well mm-hmm. as the Jews. So there's complex historical reasons. And, you know, the best possible solution is to benefit both both sides and hopefully to get the terrorists, you know, out of government. Mm-hmm. And we would pray the same for Russia, wouldn't we? The, the Russian people are not evil. I mean, they're the first victims of the horrible dictatorship they're under. But you don't want to throw the whole of the Russian people under the bus just because of the dictatorship. Same with China. Anyway, but the rapture, like I said a few minutes ago, the do- origin of the doctrine of the rapture was not exegetical or biblical. It occurred in a flaky, charismatic group that had weird beliefs about the return of Christ, actually. As a matter of fact, that particular charismatic group built a church in London where they put uh, seats in there for the 12 apostles because they believed that they'd sit in that in in their <laughs> big church they built in London when Christ returned. So it was a weird group. What, what Greek or Hebrew happen? word did they translate to mean London? <laughs> what was that? I've, I've heard Russia. <laughs> well, this, this was the Irvingites, and they uh, you can research the history of them. But um, that's where the, the rapture originated in, a, in an Irvingite prayer meeting, where this girl had a vision of a secret return of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how, at least how the vision was interpreted. Um, and, so let's and talk through some of the biblical bases that people point to. Well, um, well the so. only biblical, there, you know, I mean, there are several that Darby then scrounged around for some text to attach mm-hmm. his opinion to, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, the main text here is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, mm-hmm. uh, where it talks about Christ coming with the clouds. And obviously, Paul's talking about the return of Christ. And Paul uses two words in in um, in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, one of which is parousia and the other which is apentasis. And both of these words refer to uh, when the emperor would come to visit a city, the citizens of the city would come out and the emperor would have a parousia, an appearing, and the citizens would go out for an apentasis with him, a, a kind of like an audience. A meeting, an audience with him, and 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 that's those are the words that Paul uses, understandably to refer to the ter- to the return of Christ. The human analogy would be Caesar coming to a particular city, and so he says Christ is going to come, and he's using metaphorical language. He's coming in the clouds. It doesn't mean that he's being parachuted out of a seven forty seven or or whatever. Um, uh, Christ is coming and we go to meet him. Now, the key is what happens after. Darby simply assumed or read, Darby read into that or wrote into mm-hmm. that the idea that he was coming to take everybody out, right? But All the Christians the out. The text is the opposite because when the citizens went to, to greet the emperor and have this audience with him, the entire point of it was they 
to escort him back into the city that he right. was approaching, mm -hmm. uh, and and whereupon he would take his throne and begin to judge, mm -hmm. and uh, and of course that's a perfect illustration because Christ will be escorted by his people into mm -hmm. the the new heavens, the new Jerusalem of Revelation twenty one twenty two, and he will conduct his eternal judgment and will sit in on the throne of the universe forever. Mm -hmm. So. So okay, cool. Let me pause it really quick. Opposite. It's it's yeah. not a taking out. It's it's Christ it's coming in to take possession of what belongs to Him. Mm -hmm. And could I be a dispensationalist and abuse that, or even could I be a historic premillennialist? No. And it, well, let me just ask the question because this I'm obviously let me let me before you yeah. ask your question, mm -hmm. uh, let me answer your previous question more fully because. Mm -hmm. The other texts are back. The other text is back in Matthew twenty-five, where it, it talks about one will be taken and the other left. And so, ah, that's where we get left behind from, right? Right. Yeah. By the way, the left behind books, as people should know, are novels, right? For a good reason, yeah. they're fiction. It's not theology. <laughs> they're not theology. So one is taken and the other left. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, the uh, what dispensationalism suggests is that the saved are taken in mm -hmm. the rapture and the lost are left behind. But what the text says is the opposite in the Gospels, right. in Matthew's yep. Gospel. It says, as it was in the days of Noah, at the return of the Son of Man, one will be taken away and the other left. Well, what happened in the days of Noah? It was the, the lost that were swept away and it was mm -hmm. the saved that were left. So, again, it's the opposite of dispensational teaching. Christ comes, the, it's the lost are taken away, but the saved remain. Right. And uh, which, the same speak to of, new heavens and new earth, new, new creation. In, in the parable of the ten virgins that Jesus tells uh, around the same place, Matthew 24, 25, in the parable of the ten virgins, they go to meet the bridegroom, Right. Mm -hmm. Now, here again, there, here's your rapture. The bridegroom comes, the virgins, the wise virgins, the church, goes to meet the bridegroom. Well, what happens next? They go for an apentasis with the bridegroom. Same, same words in 1 Thessalonians 4. Mm. And guess what? The text itself explicitly says they escort mm -hmm. the bridegroom back into the bank. In, right. right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. these are the kind of things that we have to look at. When Paul went to Rome... Uh, it says that the brothers came out to the three taverns. Maybe they had a beer or two. I don't know. But they went out to a place called the three taverns, Trace de Bernay and Trace de Bernay in Latin. Mm -hmm. And it says for an apentasis with Paul for a meeting, an audience. They greeted Paul like Caesar, right, to honor him. And then it says they escorted him back into Rome, where he lived for a couple of years. And so the... When you look at the actual biblical evidence that is cited in favor of the rapture, it teaches the absolute opposite, which is mm -hmm. why uh, someone told me, a pastor told me uh, this past weekend, you know, in a, in a denomination, a particular denomination that had been very pro-dispensationalism, the problem was that all the people that were teaching at their Bible colleges as they began to study, they found out <laughs> dispensationalism was ridiculous. 
<laughs> and so, oh because, no, because their job depended on it, they had right. a choice, right? Yeah. And so they started losing all their teachers. Right. Their teachers all went over to other colleges or into a, a pastorate in another type of church because they could no longer in conscience sign off on dispensationalism. Right. Once they'd studied the word of God, they realized how ridiculous it was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, and I've been told that by a staff, a staff member at a, mm -hmm. um, a very prominent historically dispensationalist school in the United States that everybody would know of, I mentioned the name of it, that, mm -hmm. this, that, that behind the scenes, none of the staff believe in it anymore. But, you know, what do you do? You don't want to lose your job. So, anyway, Is that DTS? Uh, I couldn't. No, I'm not. I'm not going to speculate or say what it is because it would be wrong. But it's a it's a pretty prominent, yeah, uh, yeah. institution with dispensationalist roots. Um, so, okay, so, let me ask you a couple of questions. So, it, it, is it possible that a dispensationalist could abuse First Thessalonians four and say, okay, here comes the Parousia um, and the Apentasis, and during the Apentasis, there's uh, that's that that's a thousand years. Or, or, you know, a seven-year tribulation or whatever it is. Um, and it takes that long for a Christ in the church to come down. Is that something that dispensationalists would try to do? Well, the seven-year tribulation, that's, that's another fiction. Um, and that's nowhere in the book of Revelation. And it's nowhere in the New Testament. And even dispensationalists admit that. They get it out of an extremely bizarre reading of four verses in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. Uh, probably too involved to go into it in, the, in this podcast. Mm -hmm. We might have to have another whole session for that. But suffice it to say that nobody in their right mind would ever read that out of Daniel chapter 9, 24 to 27, unless they had a preconceived idea that they tried to read into the text. Right. Um, so that's where that comes from. Uh, the idea of the millennium uh, is, is a little, is there, there, there is a a, a, a sort of a thread in the history of the church of people who have believed in a, a literal earthly millennium, but never associated with dispensationalism. Okay. Do words, dispensationalists, do they have a millennial view? Like, do oh, they yeah. believe in a literal they, thousand they, year they, reign? That's central to dispensationalism is, is Jesus will rule over right. uh, an earthly kingdom. But so first there's the rapture, then there's a seven-year tribulation. Well, I guess there's a few different modes of dispensationalism there. There's well, pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib, right? The takes place prior to the tribulation. So pre-tribulation, then there's a seven-year tribulation. Some dispensationalists might be mid-trib or post-trib uh, oh, no, in terms of the rapture. Post-trib takes you out of dispensationalism and into something else. Historic, so. historic pre-mill. Okay, so either pre-trib or mid-trib. And then there's the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth in, right. in history. And that's in a kind of a, it, um, it's possible, you know, uh, you, you may have no time for dispensationalism. Dispensationalism with, you know, God sent Jesus, the earthly kingdom, um, the Old Testament and the Gospels aren't relevant for the church. Uh, the church, Jesus failed in his mission. The church is plan B. Then right. there's going to be a secret rapture and all. And you don't believe in any of that, right? Because right, it's all none unbiblical. Of, none of that. Yep. But you're confronted with this one verse or a couple of verses in the book of Revelation, which talk right. about a thousand year period of mm -hmm. time. 
And so you assume that for some unknown reason, Jesus is going to return in the way that all of us believe he'll return visibly mm -hmm. once everyone will see him. Uh, and at that time, uh, Jesus, be in between the return of Jesus and the final judgment, the great white throne judgment will take place for some reason, um, uh, for some unknown reason, uh, but Jesus will preside over a literal earthly millennium. And, and, and the Bible doesn't really give any reason why Jesus would do that. And there isn't really any other reference other than, other than this very, very brief reference in, in Revelation chapter 20 uh, to a millennium. Um, but some people have believed in that. Um, and okay, so no, what you're talking about right now is historic premillennialism. It's which called historical premillennialism. Mm -hmm. and Does that have any say about the, the state of Israel? No. Okay. Theoretically, so no. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. there are people, for instance, the as I understand it, the House of Prayer in Kansas City, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Mike Bickle, and, and right, and and a number of others, but principally with that group that would say they're historical pre-mill, they're not dispensationalists, but they seem to be as passionate about Israel mm -hmm. as the dispensationalists yeah. are. And I saw how just, passionate they were, and I just assumed that they were dispensationalists. No, they, they say they're not, but they're practicing dispensationalists, even if they right. deny it. Functional. Functional dispensationalists. Mm -hmm. And and it gets it gets into problems because— and What do they ground that in? Like what— is, are they grounding well, that in that, in what Paul talks me. about in Romans about a, if, a revival of Jews at the end of the age? Yes, yes. But I talked to a friend of mine who's in that category, uh, in that camp, a few weeks ago, and he said, "But what about the Jews?" And I said, "Well, read Romans eleven at the end. Paul says there'll be a revival of the Jewish people um, mm -hmm. in the last days before the return of Christ." And he looked at me as though I hit him with a brick bat or something, and he said. You you got to be kidding! You actually believe I'm an amillennialist. I don't believe in dispensationalism, and I don't believe in a millennium. And so he said, "You actually believe God has a plan for the Jewish people?" I said, "Of course. That's that's got nothing to do with my eschatology. That's what Paul teaches in Romans chapter eleven. And he just couldn't conceive of how someone who didn't wasn't a dispensationalist or didn't even believe in a millennium could be could believe that." God had a plan for the Jewish people. But I said to him, God's plan for the Jewish people doesn't have anything to do with the state of Israel. It's the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And and that's what God's concerned about. Uh, and What was the part uh, that he couldn't believe? The call of God are irrevocable, Paul says. Mm -hmm. So I do believe that there'll be a massive end times, you know, before Christ returns, evangelistic harvest of uh, amongst the Jewish people. I do believe uh, that. And he, he, he couldn't believe that you've think that he thought you would be just completely unconcerned with yeah, the he Jewish people? That because I was was not a dispensationalist, um, that automatically I would not hold out any hope for the Jewish people. Right, because, right, right. You, you know, this is the problem when you get fixated on the political state of Israel. You, you can't even understand that the state of Israel mm -hmm. and the scattered Jewish people across the world are two entire are two different entities. Hmm. I mean, within the state of Israel, there there's I don't know one third are not even Jewish people, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're, the majority of Jewish people, I think still, uh, at least 50%, probably more than 50%, live outside of Israel. So there are tons of Jewish people that live outside of Israel. And within Israel, there are tons of non-Jewish people. So how do you figure, how do you then endorse the state of Israel in, in terms of equating it with, you know, God's purposes and the Jewish people? They're two different right. things. Yeah, I suppose um, the only way you could come at it correctly from a theological perspective would be to look at this conflict as uh, as as an opportunity for God to providentially lead Israel into salvation. I mean, I suppose you could take that approach and pray for that, um, and even work for that to be on the ground preaching the gospel in Israel, pointing people to Christ. I, I suppose that would be entirely appropriate. But just just in the same way that. If uh, a series of calamities hit the United States, it will be an opportunity to preach the gospel because people are more likely to turn to God mm-hmm. in times of crisis. You right, know, but the Bible people. does predict a, a massive end times revival amongst the Jews at the end. I suppose that's one detail that adds a little bit of extra oomph behind that that effort. Yeah, but you see, the problem at, at our present uh, point in time is that Jesus the only indicator that Jesus really gave about his return uh, was that the gospel of the kingdom had to go to every nation, Matthew 24, mm-hmm. 14, before the Son of Man would return. The word there is ethnos, people group. There are thousands mm-hmm. of them. And there's no way that that's happened yet. Right. And so I'm the last person to ever say, you know, I mean, the Lord can return anytime he wants, and, and I could be smitten down as a false teacher or something. But I mean, I'm still going to say, look, it looks to me like this is not the time for the Lord to return because that scripture has not been fulfilled. Mm -hmm. So and if that's the case, it's not yet the time for the end time harvest of the Jewish people. Uh, But, you know, so all of this sets the stage then for how we look at the political events. But you know as well as I do that uh, that when you start giving a political perspective, then you have to be open to other people's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for instance, people that 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 are very uh, in favor of former President Trump, it's almost like you can't be a a, a Christian. For some people, you mm-hmm. if you're a Christian, you have to be in favor of Trump. And so then it becomes that they don't have appreciation of the fact that there could be other Christians who have legitimate reasons for taking a different point of view. And I'm not taking any point of view, right? I'm just saying we're, we're, we're treading on thin ice when we, when we say that this politician is representing God or this political Mm -hmm. viewpoint is, is representing God. We, We, that's foolishness to say that. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're on the left or the right or in the middle. And with the state of Israel, we can look at it and say— Just uh, one point, just to interject for our listeners, so you don't misunderstand, David. There are certain issues that are labeled as political, such as abortion, that David and I don't label. We, we don't, uh, we, we don't um, minimize them or, or 
tried to basically we're saying those are bigger than political things. Sometimes my vocabulary completely fails me. So that I just don't want our listeners to misunderstand. There are certain things that we believe there are Christian perspectives on and non-Christian perspectives on, and those things actually transcend. They are bigger than politics. Um, sorry, Dave, I just wanted to put that in there so people didn't misunderstand you. Absolutely, Jake. But when you, and abortion is really clear in terms of, and I've always said vote for a candidate yep. that is pro-life. I mean, I'll mm -hmm. die in that hill. You're, you're talking but, more um, along the lines of what economic principles and things that are at play like that. Sure. And we well, don't need to go down to this rabbit trail because it'll totally derail us. You know, Isaiah talks about feeding the poor. Jesus talks that um, the apostles told Paul to remember the poor. You know, the Old Testament is full of admonitions that this is the fast that I'm calling for. It's to break the yoke of injustice. And people on the left of the spectrum who are Christians have used mm -hmm. Isaiah, for instance, to say, well, hey, you know, um, uh, a little bit of democratic socialism here is is biblical. So uh, and I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just saying there are nuances in all of this. And right. in the body of Christ, we shouldn't be yelling at each other. We should be listening to each other. So, uh, yeah. Um, and the, and the same when when we come to analyzing the news perspectives, we we kind of want to look at it and say, well, you know, the atrocities that were committed are absolutely horrendous. We we can't possibly support that. We understand why Israel would want to fight back to secure mm -hmm. protect its own people. We understand that. Um, that doesn't mean that you know that we would uh, that let's say you or I probably would say, well, if they go in and and just start massacring. Uh, or willy-nilly killing uh, Palestinian civilians and women and children, they're justified in doing that because of what right. the other side did to them, because two wrongs don't make a right. You mm -hmm. know, and I know it's very, very difficult when it comes to warfare, um, but uh, they're the nuances that we're dealing mm -hmm. with. Yeah, no, it's really helpful. So, um, again, there's, there's no theological reason why someone uh, would, why a Christian would have a, uh, unquestionable pro-israel stance the, it's just it's yeah. not biblical it, it's it's not at all not um we can uh and should believe in a um large harvest of jewish people into the kingdom of god through the same means of salvation that everybody uh is jew and gentile is saved up until that that moment in time which is through christ um and what's going to precede that is the gospel going around the world um, and okay, so we're on the same page there. I think that's really helpful for people. Uh, dispensationalism is the only one of the four major, uh, eschatological views that puts such an emphasis on, um, the state of Israel and it has its roots in the 1800s. It's not even a historically orthodox perspective on top of that. Okay, and I'm getting to my next question here. On top of that, the three, I guess, kind of orthodox positions would be premillennium, uh, that thousand-year reign of Christ, and when Christ returns in, um, in regards to that. Now, I just want to clarify something. You said you don't believe in a millennium. I would say a, perhaps a better way of saying that is you don't believe in a literal millennium. You don't think that the thousand years is a literal period of time. But we do Correct. believe that Christ has a millennial reign, as depicted in Revelation 20. It's just that that millennial reign is, A, not literally a thousand years, because a thousand is a symbolic number for 
essentially an undisclosed really long period of time. And B, that millennial reign is happening right now. Uh, C, um, uh, pr it is primarily situated in the heavenly. So Christ reigns right now until every enemy is put under his feet. Um, and those who are dead in Christ are uh, reigning with him. Um, and so in that sense, the millennium is happening. Uh, is, is that a, would you say that's an accurate representation? The, the millennium is the church age. The earthly <laughs> aspect of the millennium is the church age. And I, I would argue that pretty clearly, so is the tribulation. Mm -hmm. These that came totally. out of the great tribulation in Revelation 7 are all deceased saints of every age. Right. Um, and, and the tribulation is, anyway, I mean, it's... We have yeah, all throughout the New Testament, the picture is pretty clear. The, tri the tribulation is, is happening now, and it has been happening for the last 2,000 years. And that's the way that the Bible, the New Testament uses the word thlipsis, which is Greek word for tribulation, always to refer to um, presently occurring events, like events that were occurring when the New Testament was written are described right. as tribulation. And that's how the New Testament refers to tribulation. If tri the tri tribulation was happening then, then it's obviously still happening now. It's something that is a feature of the church age. It's a time of tribulation. It's a time of suffering. The kingdom has come, but not in its fullness. Christians are persecuted. They're being threatened. You know, um, we could say that there, the, the Bible does seem to depict perhaps an increase in the suffering right before the very end. That, and that's, I'm thinking of scriptures like Revelation chapter 20. Um, but chapter, also, I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. I'm also and, thinking and of like Revelation chapter 11, chapter 11 yeah. at the end. That mm -hmm. that's what I would uh, yeah. argue. So you have the two witnesses, uh, which represent the church, that lay slain in the street for three and a half days, um, right. in comparison to their three and a half years of of ministry. Um, and, and so uh, those numbers taken symbolically, you've got the the church age, and at the very end, it, yeah, I think. It, it is justified in saying that it's going to look like the church is losing. Um, and then comes the resurrection. Okay, so there's, there's the biblical case for some increased tribulation, um, but the whole time period of the church age can be viewed as a tribulation period. Um, okay, wh one more question comes to mind. What, was there a kind of like a unified view in the church fathers and the early church, generally speaking, towards? Well, I guess, it, yeah, it's completely irrelevant because the nation of Israel, the state of Israel wasn't a thing for them. So this was, wouldn't have been well, something that they even considered. You know, but it wasn't a thing in Darby's day either, but he made it a thing. Mm. Um, okay, so the, did the church fathers have any view well, here yeah, in terms they, of the... Well, the, it was not a big issue. Um, for the early church fathers, um, it wasn't really a big issue. Uh, the opinion was divided insofar as opinions were given. Opinion was divided between uh, belief in a, histor a historical premillennialism, which is that, you know, Jesus would return and then there'd be a thousand year reign. Uh, the majority opinion. Um, and I get this from the one uh, thorough academic study that's been done by a man called Charles Hill, 
he has gone through every conceivable reference uh, in the church fathers. And the the majority opinion is what we would call amillennial. Most of them did not believe in a literal millennium, but a minority did believe. And I have to say that the minority that did believe in the literal millennium also had some other strange views often. Um, But nobody was a dispensationalist. So there is justification for, I mean, and and most of the people that believed in a historical millennium, they just, they didn't have it, make an issue of it. They just made a casual remark that indicated they believed in a millennial period. Mm -hmm. That's just how they read Revelation. And was that pre-millennial to them? Like Christ was going to return and then there'd be a literal thousand years or was that post? Yeah, well, Christ Christ would return, uh, and he would he would return once, um, and initiate a millennial period, but the judgment wouldn't occur until the end of it. But nobody was it wasn't a big issue, so nobody got into great debates over it, um, or started, you know, arguing it to any extent about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the time of Augustine in the Fifth century, um, opinion was pretty unified uh, that there wasn't that the the millennium the Revelation twenty was a symbolic way of referring to the church age, and that's mm-hmm. the way that that the church, broadly speaking, um, with virtually no exceptions, understood it that way right through until Darby in eighteen something. Right. There were very few people who believed in the literal millennium. Okay. Last question. Let's close with this. This has been such a great discussion, David. Thank you so much. Um, why do you think dispensationalism has taken such root? I think it's partly, uh, partly because people have a fascination with um, a current events apparently confirming the Bible. Uh, you know, it, it's like they find their, the, it, it's the same way, it's sort of not the same, but similar to, let's say, we see a miracle. Right. And that strengthens our faith. For some people, to think that this is what the Bible predicted is coming true strengthens their faith. And, um, uh, but the, the sting in the you know the the boomerang of, of that is that when it actually turns out not to be the case, it comes back mm-hmm. to bite you mm-hmm. and to make you look very foolish, especially if you've been witnessing to other people and telling them this kind of thing. So, and that's why a lot of young people, younger people today, my experience, people of my generation are the ones that were raised on, left behind, all that sort of thing. Right. But younger people today, they've, they've lived through way too many false predictions. And so they, mm-hmm. when I, I talk to them, they say, oh, Revelation, I've given up on that. Well, that is an absolute tragedy because the right. book of Revelation is one of the most so significant powerful. books in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Very important message to the church about not compromising your faith and suffering and you know, um, God sustaining us and, and the nature of the Christian life. Not only that, but it bookends the Bible, the beginning of Genesis and end of Revelation, tie the whole Bible together. And mm-hmm. you're, I always say your eschatology affects everything you believe. Mm-hmm. And if, if 
you have no eschatology, it also affects how you believe. What you know, the so it's really it's probably worth clarifying that there are some prophetic uh, writings in the Bible that are yet future, um, but they would be the exception. You know, like some parts of Revelation point us to the very the the very last moments of the last days. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, the last in the series of the the judgments the of the judgments of which mm -hmm. there are four sets of seven, uh, which depicts the complete judgment of God on the whole earth. That's why Mm -hmm. there's four sets of seven. But in those four sets, the last couple of elements refer to. The events immediately the return of Christ. As an and example. what a dispensationalist does is they read the entire book of Revelation in a futurist right. lens, whereas we would read it in what's called a partial preterist. It's mostly pre, it's mostly uh, past. S- some of it is future, um, but John is certainly speaking and writing within his current day context, it's, which it's, is applicable, applicable to the church throughout the, the whole church age. church of every age. Right. Whereas dispensationalism says revelation actually is for the seven year tribulation period. Right. And right. in which case, why is it even in the Bible? Because it's totally irrelevant to the church, the book of right. Revelation. If dispensationalism is correct, it, it, it describes events that are happening when the rest of us won't even be around. So right. that's just one of many ludicrous Right. dimensions like, of why the would the seven churches thing. in revelation two and three even bother to read it if it didn't apply to them <laughs> exactly <laughs> and people chop uh, it off and say oh well there's a difference between the letters of the seven churches and the rest there isn't actually right. they're right. they're organically linked i mean <laughs> i don't have time but i i could show you all the linkages all the things that are taking place in the seven churches reappear in the various mm-hmm. sets of visions, because they were all things that were happening to them at that time. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. One of the things I see kind of going around on, <laughs> on Instagram is the phrase, it's looking pretty biblical out there, um, yes. <laughs> which I kind of, got, I get a chuckle out of it. I'm like, you're right. It is because it's always looking pretty biblical at all times. Um, but not in the way that you're saying, you know, it's actually from yeah. your, you know, your perspective. Um, it, it's things are well, not, not at all that way. I'm, I think we're coming down the landing plane here, but I'll yeah, put we should. To my, my book, Mystery Explained, which has been really helpful to tons of people. Uh, it's a simple guide to revelation. Uh, it's what my wife said right for me. Uh, and it, for the average person, uh, you can get it from Amazon or, you know, Barnes and Noble or Waterstones in England or whatever. Mystery explained a simple guide to revelation. And I go through the text and I explain all these things in, mm-hmm. I think, fair, a fairly clear way. Very clear. Indeed. I've read it. Um, okay. Awesome. This has been a really fruitful discussion. Um, and I uh, will probably maybe do like a follow-up to this. Um, there's a video that I sent you that someone had sent to me from Francis Chan that I haven't finished watching yet um, that I want to from the synopsis that was given to me, it, it sounds like he's kind of taking a post-millennial perspective, uh, but I don't want to misrepresent, represent, misrepresent his view. Um, but I'm curious to watch that and perhaps uh, offer up some thoughts since he's such a notable figure. David, love you so much. Uh, thank you so much for this discussion. Have an amazing day. And thank you everybody for listening to Good Theology. 